The early church sang a short hymn called an antiphon. The third antiphon went something like this. O root of Jesse, standing as a sign among the peoples, before you kings will shut their mouths, to you nations will make their prayer, come and deliver us and delay no longer. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joe Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism, and I am the pastor at the Bread of Life in Boise. If you wish to learn more about our work to raise up evangelists and church planters around the world, go to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our church, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Our fellowship meets every Sunday at 11 a.m. in the Old White Church in the Warm Springs area of Boise. We'd welcome you to join our worship, and we're glad to share with you a note of that worship around God's Word now. O Root of Jesse, it's taken from the Messianic passage of Isaiah 11. The Assyrians have wiped out the nation and rulers of Israel, and David's line has been cut down to a stump, a stump of his father Jesse. And yet from that stump, Isaiah sees a small branch, a root rising up, to which one day all the nations will gather. What a promise in the face of seeming ruin. The Messiah will overcome it all, overcome it all, one day. Let's look at this passage now, just with our eyes on chapter 11. In verse 2, what we see is the equipment of his rule, the equipment of the rule of this little branch. He's equipped with the Spirit of God. There was this understanding in the Hebrew writing that God's Spirit was revealed in a sevenfold way. You might remember that the candelabra in the holy place represented the Holy Spirit and it had seven candles burning from it. And here we have seven mentions of the Spirit of God. First is just the Spirit of Jehovah, it said, will come. And then you have a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of knowledge. You have a spirit of counsel and might. You have a spirit of knowledge of Yahweh and the fear of Yahweh. These are all mentioned. Let's look at them very quickly. The spirit of wisdom is the spirit of understanding how all things in nature work. How all things in nature work. The practical way in which they work and express themselves. And then you also have the spirit of knowledge, which is basically knowing all that is before you, knowing what it is. In other words, he knows all things that are before him. He knows what they are, and he knows how they work. He can identify everything as to its purpose and its design and how it carries out that design and how it works. And then the next thing you have is you have the spirit of counsel. That is the ability to take this knowledge and this wisdom and then build from it a plan, an operating plan on how to carry out and apply what he knows and the wisdom of how those things work together in order to fulfill some divine and wonderful purpose. And so he has the spirit of counsel. But beyond the spirit of knowing how then to integrate all that together into a design or a purpose, he has the power to execute it. He has might and he has power. And then you find out what's the motivation behind this wisdom and this knowledge and this ability to synthesize it into a plan and this power to exercise it. What motivates it is this binding relationship with God. It's a knowledge. It's a deep knowing of Yahweh and who He is. It's a deep, loving, abiding relationship with Him. It's the Spirit. This interplay of the Messiah with Yahweh who sent Him and Finally, there is in this deep knowledge, in this deep love of Yahweh, there is also in it a great and powerful spirit of holy reverence or fear. 
so that all that he does is done out of his love and done out of his reverence to apply his wisdom and knowledge to the right plan and the right strategy and to implement it by the right power, the power of the Spirit. This has all been infused in him by the Spirit of God. That's his equipment. Now let's look at the second thing, and it's the conduct of his rule. And what we see here in verses 3 through 5 is that he rules in righteousness. Verse 5 is actually the key to understanding verses 3 and 4. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loin. How is that righteous rule expressed? Well, the first thing we see here in verse 3 is that he delights in, it says he delights in the reverence or fear of the Lord. That is, that he's capable of recognizing those who are motivated themselves by the same knowledge of God and this love of God and this reverence for God. He's not fooled by people who share some kind of fawning interest in the same things you're interested in. You know, people can scope out what you're interested in, what your sensitivities are, and then they can sell themselves to you by appealing to your sensitivities and your interests, and they can fool you by using those things to manipulate you. But he knows the difference between those who fawn interest and those who pretend reverence and interest in the things that you're interested in, the things that you are the value systems in your life, you see, and those who really hold to them. In this case, he can tell those who fawn or pretend to reverence and interest in God and the person whose heart is true to him and truly reverences and fears him. And it's that person he delights in. That sparks a response in him. He identifies and so he's able to find those who can work with him in executing his will and his purposes as he comes to reign. And then as he carries out this righteous rule, this recognition of who it is that are those that he can trust and whom he delights in, it influences the rule in such a way that he cares for those who are most needy. He cares for those who are downtrodden. He lifts those who have been denied access because of the manipulation of others. The very people who have feigned an interest and have pretended to come and care for the poor and have used these different strategies in order to sequester and manipulate people to their own political ends and their own powerful ends. He's able to recognize it. He's going to bring his judgments against them. It says he'll judge the wicked and he'll bring to those poor that have been pawns, you might say, of people's power plays. He'll bring to them an expression of righteousness that truly cares for their needs and meets them while at the same time he brings harsh judgment of those who have grown fat off the misfortunes of others. It says at the very end, his very words that will come out in judgment. His words are able to shatter in pieces the false narratives of those who sought manipulation and control. Shatters them as he reigns in righteousness. Here's the third thing, it's this. It's the product of his rule. It says here that restores all the earth all of animal life to a state of abundant peace. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play in the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine what an alarm it would be now if you saw a child doing that? The nursing child shall play in the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the cause of this wonderful outcome that will be realized? Well, it's found in that last verse we read, verse 9. It's the fact that God 
the knowledge of God is brought forward upon the earth like a great inundating flood. It's when this knowledge of God is bowed to and not suppressed but confessed that healing comes to the world's dis-ease and the world is brought back into this state, this Edenic state. You know, the mystics took this description that we just read and they felt that it was to be spiritualized, to be an expression of spiritual life that we're to realize ourselves. And so they didn't take it literally. And then the modernists took that passage and said, well, let's take it literally, but let's just say it's this fanciful dream of idealistic individuals. But when we look at this passage, it's not to be symbolized. It's not simply to be spiritualized. We should take it literally. It's a literal promise from God. Dielich writes that this, this promise from God, its realization is to be expected on this side of the boundary between time and eternity. Dielich turns our attention to look at, he's a commentator, he turns our attention to Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. So go there for a second. Because Paul speaks to the same thing. How that in time, in the creative order that God has made, this creation, as it is now, is longing for a day of redemption. A day that's just been described for us here in Isaiah chapter 11. The product of the righteous rule of the one who is equipped with the Spirit of God, the Messiah that rises up from the stump of Jesse. Here in Romans 8 verses 19 through 22 we read this. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willing but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It is longing for a release to come to it. The Bible reveals to us there's coming a day when we who have died and have risen up to be with Christ and those who are drawn to him at his coming will come down from the heavens clothed in white behind him as a great king upon a white horse and will come with him to reign upon the earth. And this is the glorious unveiling of the sons of God. And it says creation is longing for that day when Christ will come to reign in that way. When he comes, he'll come to bring to earth the inundation of the knowledge of God and the experience of the knowledge of God that will flow from one end of the earth to the other. And what we can say about this is that the knowledge of God, fully known and fully experienced throughout the world, will bring to an end the violent antagonisms of creation. There is at this moment in time, uh, rule or a reign that's taking place in creatures from the greatest to the least. A fierce conflict and bloodthirstiness that is most savage and it happens throughout the creative order. But when the son of David enters into the possession of his royal inheritance and he comes to rule, there will be the peace of paradise descending over all of creation. And all the different popular legends of a golden age that's to be realized and to come will be fulfilled. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying. That moment when all of the aggression of creation will be wiped away before the knowledge and the experience of the presence of God. The hostilities that mar the human race will vanish from every part of creation. Here's another application for us. There is, to some extent, ways in which we can find peace on earth today now. What it is, is we figure out that 
Life is better when we don't fight with one another. You know, we figure out that you know, there are advantages to be gained if every one of us can own a McDonald's and have enough money to go buy a hamburger and, a, and some french fries. There was until recently. Things have changed in the last five years. There was a book that was written that was proving the case that wherever you had a McDonald's in a country, you didn't have wars. They decided we like McDonald's better than we like battles and wars. And so, well, that's kind of gone by the wayside, but it held up for a couple of decades, right? Get a McDonald's into a country. Get them rich enough. Get people to realize that there is some enlightened self-interest in some form of capitalism. And if they just will see that, there will be a certain measure of peace that will be realized in the world. It seemed to work for a while. It doesn't seem to be working so much now. The wheels of that kind of peace are beginning to wobble. Enlightened self-interest will only go so far in creating peace. True peace only comes as God is known and to the extent that God is known. You know him. You know him deeply. He begins to create and author in your life peace. The world knows him and knows him deeply. He will flood the earth with peace. He will drive back every expression of hostility. It won't come through enlightened self-interest. It will come through the enlightenment of God's very presence. Now we're the people of God. We're the ones who, are, who profess to know God and have a relationship with God. And as such, we should be people who manifest above everything else. Peace. Peace with one another. Peace before God, peace in the midst of circumstances that are discouraging and threatening, and we among all people should be able to walk among wolves and lions and serpents. Well, thanks for listening in to the Bread of Life, and I hope you join us in our next broadcast. If you want to learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.